Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered Him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making Him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. If you're hungry for that encounter, if you're dying to know the love of God, which alone makes sense out of life, if you're longing to know that you matter so much and that His power can fill you with all that you need so that you can be the man or the woman that you want to be, then join me and dig into the scriptures and the teachings of the church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. Today, Father Ricardo takes the question from C.S. Lewis and delves into the possible answers for the question. The theological question, who do you say I am? Is Jesus Lord, liar, or lunatic? We used to do Theology on Tap in Washington, D.C., just for young adults, and we would get three to 500 people a week, largely because Washington, D.C. has such a tight network of young adults, and the way it would work is one of us would go in and give a talk, and then you'd just have a whole slew of priests. We owned the whole bar every week. It was just amazing. And there'd be priests scattered throughout in booths just hearing confessions. And uh, it's a bar, you know, so... Someone's drinking a Labatt Blue, or they got a, a single malt straight up, and somehow the inhibitions about going to confession seem to wane. <laughs> so if any of you feel so inclined after tonight, first drinks on me, and then uh, we'll see what God does from there. It's also great to continue a very good working relationship with Ave Maria Radio. Those of you who have never listened to either 990 WDEO or 1440 WMAX, I've had a great relationship with them and the people that I used to work with at the Cardinal Mita Institute out in Plymouth. What I wanted to do in these weeks, starting tonight and then going for three more weeks after this, is uh, kind of play up the whole theme of back to school. So those of you with kids in grade school or high school or in college, this is the time of year where we're now done with Labor Day and people are immersed in the uh, tediousness of being back in their education and whatnot. Hopefully it's not tedious, but you're a little freer, those of you with kids, except when they come home and you have to help them with their homework. So I thought for us it'd be a similar kind of thing to have as a starting point some what may look to be very basic elementary topics, but in fact I don't think they are, and they'll become the foundation upon which then we can build everything else that I would like to try to do. So tonight's topic goes by one of three titles, either The Absolute Uniqueness of Jesus Christ, or you have on your sheet, Who Do You Say That I Am?, which comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, that great encounter with Jesus and the apostles on the way to Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the apostles, what's the talk out there? What are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? And they answer, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're Elijah. Come back. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Come back. And then he looks at them, and he looks at each of us tonight, and he says very directly, But what about you? Who is it that you say that I am? So that's the second topic or title that we could give to tonight's talk. And then the last title comes from C.S. Lewis in his great little books, Mere Christianity, which is simply, Is Jesus Lord, Liar, or Lunatic? Or for kids, it's kind of the three L's, huh? You know, (laughs) He's either the Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. So that's what we're going to get into. I've given you a handout with a series of different things on front and back. The front is a listing of some different books that I would suggest. People are always asking me for books to read. I've brought all of them here. So sometimes it's helpful to know what difference does Jesus make looks like this. The Redeemer of Man looks like this. (laughs) So this might be a little bit more appealing. The Handbook of Christian Apologetics looks like this. These are all up here for your leisure to look through. Feel free to take a peek. I've also got three other books that aren't on there that I just want to suggest to you. One is a book by a guy named Paul Barnett. It's called Is the New Testament History? looks like this. It's thin. It's manageable. Very worthwhile. Another book by um, Luke Timothy Johnson, which is entitled The Real Jesus. This is a, a response to all these people who are involved in what's called the Jesus Seminar who supposedly have discovered what Jesus did and didn't say. So if you're familiar with the people in the Jesus Seminar, if you go to Barnes & Nobles or Borders or any big chain bookstore and you look under Christianity, you'll see an awful lot of books by people who belong to what's known as the Jesus Seminar. They've put together their own Bible or their own New Testament where they've color-coded Jesus' words. So 
Certain words are in blue, certain ones are in pink, certain ones are in yellow, certain ones are in green, certain ones are in black. And something denote words that Jesus might have said, could have said, didn't possibly say, absolutely said. And so these self-proclaimed historians, and they're bad historians at that, have taken it upon themselves to just shred the New Testament, and you end up with about two, maybe three sentences of words that they would say, we know Jesus actually said. This is a response to that. Johnson's a great scholar, and he really delves into what it means to do historical work. So for those of you who like to do more, I would recommend that. And then lastly, just to overwhelm you, uh, is a book that came out recently, last year, I think, by uh, an Anglican scholar. He's uh, an excellent scholar. His name is N.T. Wright, and it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. So, so much for uh, bibliography. I can say some more about those maybe at the end if we have some questions or people looking for some good aids. All of them very worthwhile. Then there's also just a couple of references on there to some papal documents or magisterial documents. One is Pope John Paul II's first encyclical, which is known by its Latin title, Redemptor Hominis, or its English title, The Redeemer of Man. That's the real thin one. And then lastly, a document from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which was in the news last week because uh, Cardinal Ratzinger supposedly said that it's fine for you to vote for pro-choice candidates, when in fact he didn't say that. Ratzinger is the head or the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and it's a document entitled Dominus Jesus, or the Lord Jesus, on the absolute uniqueness of Christ, hence one of the titles for us today. You can get that on the Vatican website, www.vatican.va. If you don't have an Internet access, call me. I'd be glad to make you a copy and send it to you. So those are the references. Then on the back page are some scriptural references just for you to take and to pray with and to look at, without going into descriptions of them, some of them I'm going to hit tonight, they're really just select references for me to give to you, to ponder, to see whether or not we really know Jesus, both from the Gospels as well as from other New Testament writings, particularly from St. Paul. And the reason for the topic tonight, and starting here at something which seems to be so basic, namely the person of Jesus, we live in an age of extreme confusion, a time of Indeed, great relativism, where my way is as good as anybody else's way, my truth is as good as your truth, which means there is no truth, except for the truth that there is no truth, which is logically self-defeating. And Jesus is just one of many great men, inspired teachers, anointed prophets, whatever it might be. So because of the age of relativism that we live in, The other problem is because of a a real lack of what I would consider to be critical thinking, I wanted to address this topic. I used to do an awful lot of retreats with a, a local high school, and I would always challenge them at the beginning that I don't think they know how to think. And unfortunately, I don't think that their education is teaching them how to think. And I would always challenge them that I hoped that they would prove me wrong, but there was a little reward if they could. And education in general, unfortunately, is trying to teach children oftentimes how to memorize, how to prepare for college, how to get good grades, how to study well. But it's a rare teacher, and bless be God, we've got them here with us tonight, but it's a rare teacher who really helps a child or an adult to critically think almost about anything. And because we live in a soundbite age where, um, you know, we just turn on the TV for our instant answers, whether it's... CNN or Fox, depending upon what flavor it is we happen to enjoy, very few people actually dive into something and engage the mind, particularly when it comes to matters of faith. And I want to do that tonight. I want to try to get us to employ the use of our reason, which God has given to us, to address matters of faith. So the question that's before us tonight is Jesus' question to Peter, and indeed to all the apostles, and to you and me by name. Again, who do you say that I am? And it is, in fact, life's most important question. And there is no escaping it. You and I have to personally address, be confronted by, and answer this question. And how we answer it changes everything. Because if we can determine that Jesus is one of the other L's, either liar or lunatic, then that comes off and we can all go home. Right? This is a huge waste of time if, in fact, Jesus is not who he is claiming to be. But if he is who he's claiming to be, then that has, if we're going to be reasonable people, people of integrity, then that has profound repercussions for everything we do with our life. And indeed, the next series of weeks will expand on that a little bit further. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? 
Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on, talked about her life. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? (laughs) And we just walked through the parable. And by the end of the parable, because she realizes she is the daughter, she's just bawling. As she comes to know the father's love and the fact that she can come home and his mercy, and despite all that had happened in her life, that there was forgiveness. She's no more unique or less unique than perhaps some of us who have very little familiarity with the Jesus who reveals himself in the Gospels. So we have to be careful that we don't get our information about Jesus from a very selective media, which has in large part reduced Jesus to be someone who's engaged in a bit of a power struggle trying to challenge those who have authority, or to just kind of reduce him to a nice guy. I used last week in a homily or a couple weeks ago a, a line from Philip Yancey, I think, where he's talking about the real Jesus who displays himself in the gospel and how he can't possibly just be a nice guy when you actually know the words. And he just, he just simply asks, what kind of government would crucify Captain Kangaroo? How can just walking around telling everybody to be nice to each other, which is what the impression you get from select sources is all Jesus was doing, how can that give rise to so much animosity? It can't, and yet Jesus did. So kind of an initial question for us is, how familiar are we with Jesus as he reveals himself? Because otherwise, then we've made up our own image of him, and that's not who he is. Jesus isn't the concoction of a bunch of brilliant men and women sitting around at a dinner table coming up with some great ideas. We can only know about God by God revealing himself to us. We could never have guessed by looking up at the universe through the most remarkable telescopes that we have that the one who made all of this is so incredibly in love with us that he would choose to become man and to walk this earth and to suffer and die so that we could live forever with him and share in his life. We wouldn't have got that on our own. He would have to tell us that, and he has. So tonight's just a a means to address some of that, to begin a conversation, and to help us to begin to think critically about Jesus. So as a means to do that, let's look at a couple of texts. Because one of the problems for us is that the words of Jesus, when they were spoken by the Lord, were a tremendous scandal to those who heard him. They were shocked. They were dumbfounded. They were outraged. They were awed. And instead, most of us, when we hear them, They just kind of go in one ear and out the other, and we don't seem to really grasp what it is that he's doing. So I just want to give you two, four, six, nine or so illustrations of this that might be familiar to us and might not be familiar to us to see what it is that this person Jesus is doing. First passage comes from Mark 2, beginning in verse 1. So he's gone back to his hometown now, or the town where he's making his home, Capernaum. And it says, after he returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So he's in this room, maybe it's this size, maybe it's smaller, and the whole town's there. It's a little town. The ruins of it, you can walk through it today. I've been there. It's, it's obviously a very little town, hundred, couple hundred people maybe. They're all there at the door or inside trying to get close to him, trying to hear him, trying to get access to him, trying to hopefully have his gaze fall upon them so that they might actually have a personal encounter with this one whom they've seen do incredible things or heard say incredible things. And they came to him, some people, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, this is a story we all know, but you have to hear this like you've never heard it. So his friends bring him there and they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. So picture either you're the man on the bed, and you can't walk. You're paralyzed, huh? Not temporarily, you're paralyzed. Or you're one of his friends bringing this person to the Lord. 
And you go through all this effort, you cut a hole in the roof, you climb up the roof, you drop this person down in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at the man and says, what? What's he say? He doesn't say walk. He says, I forgive you. You what? I mean, maybe you haven't noticed. I can't move. That's why I'm here. That's why I've been dropped down through the roof in front of you, in front of all these people. I can't move. But Jesus doesn't heal him. Jesus says to him, I forgive you. Which we may not be all that shocked by, but the crowd is irate over. Particularly the Pharisees who say to him, Why does this man speak thus? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This isn't like Steve comes up to me and we had a little bit of an argument yesterday and I look at him and I go, hey, you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. This is a man I've never seen before in my life saying, I forgive you. For what? Somehow Jesus in saying this is communicating not just to the man but to everybody, indeed to all of us who hear it, that he was somehow offended in the person's sins and he also has the authority and the power to forgive them. To which they all mock him and indeed are irate at him, thinking that he's claiming to be God, which is exactly what he's claiming. And they get into an argument with him, and he looks at him and he says, Now, why are you so surprised that I'm saying this? What do you think it's tougher to say? I forgive you or walk? Well, which one's the tougher to say? Walk, right? The moment I tell you, if you're paralyzed, to walk, if you don't get up and walk, so much for my authority over your inability to walk, huh? If I just simply say, I forgive you, you may not know whether or not I have the authority to do that. But because I do the difficult thing and I say, walk, and you who haven't been able to walk, get up and walk out, it all of a sudden lends a little credibility to the claim I made before, which is, I have the power to forgive you, which is the most important healing this particular person needed. So we see in this passage, there's a lot here, but the point I'm trying to make is, Jesus is doing something which is utterly scandalous. He's claiming to forgive the sins of someone who has not personally offended him or at least doesn't appear to have personally offended him. Catch that? Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33. Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Sane people don't talk like that. Normal people don't talk like that. If in the midst of the Democratic National Convention or the Republican National Convention, either of the candidates had gotten up and at the end of their speech had said something like this, that would have sealed the election. Normal men and women don't say things like this. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, I won't read the whole thing. It's the story that we're all familiar with where Jesus says, whatsoever you did to the least of my brethren, you did to me. It's no small claim. When you fed the hungry... You fed me. When you neglected to feed the hungry, you neglected to feed me. And because of what you did to them or didn't do to them, meaning what you did to me or didn't do to me, so that will determine where it is that you will spend eternity. Normal people don't say that. John 6. Lots in John 6. Let's just look at verses uh, 48 to 58. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread, meaning me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. At which the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're scandalized by this. How is it that we're not? How is it that we just hear this and go, Oh yeah, I know that passage. They're just outraged and at least perplexed. So Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Sane people don't say things like this. 
Inspired teachers don't say things like this. Wise men don't say things like this. Prophets don't say things like this. Fruitcakes say things like this. Nutballs say things like this. Normal people don't talk like this. Gets even better. John chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, now we know you have a demon. Again, they hear this. They're attuned. They're listening. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets, all the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day, my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Which is... In Hebrew, Yahweh, which is the name which the Jews do not pronounce. It's the name which God reveals about himself when he revealed himself to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 3. Before Abraham was, says this man standing in front of them, I am. John chapter 10, verses 7 to 10, where Jesus says, All who came before me were thieves and marauders, but I have come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. Go home and ponder that one tonight. Because he loved them, he stayed where he was. His friends in need, he can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow, because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Which can be read two different ways. And I don't think either one of them is exclusive of each other. One way is certainly a pronouncement of faith. The other is a rather strong accusation. If you had been here, Lord, he wouldn't have died. But you weren't here. You didn't come. We called. You didn't answer. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best. When in fact, he has something which far surpasses what we asked for. The challenge is in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? That's certainly what Martha and Mary are experiencing as Jesus stands in front of them now. And so Martha says to Jesus, beginning in verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And whoever lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Normal people don't say things like that. John 14, last illustration. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, you're looking at the Father. Normal people don't say that. Again, if you're watching one of the conventions, one of the candidates stands up and says, oh, by the way, I've got something to tell you tonight. When you look at me, you see God. (laughs) Click. (laughs) What's on ESPN? Normal people don't say this. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. 
Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. And because he's doing that, that gives us these three options that Lewis talks about. Lord, liar, or lunatic. It means he either thinks he's God, but he's not, which means he's nuts. Or he knows he's not, but he's telling us he is, which means he's evil. Or he knows he is, and he's telling us he is, which means he's the Lord. You don't get any other choices. In the midst of our culture today, in this age of relativism, which wants to grant Jesus some significance, but not so much. So we'll give him wise man, great leader, inspiring preacher, great teacher, prophet. You don't get that option when you claim to be God. You have to choose from these three and these three alone. And if he's either of the first two, liar or lunatic, then out we go. Let's drink up and eat, drink, be merry. I have got a lot of better other things to do with my time. If he is, it changes everything. Question is, how do we know? kind of the million-dollar question, huh? How do we know? Maybe we could ask it this way. What reasons do we have to believe that he is who he said he is? And it's important, again, to employ the use of our reason and to understand that faith is not blind. My faith, and please God, the faith of everyone here, is not blind. It rests on something. It rests on a number of things, not least of which is my own experience of God, but it also has something substantial which can be claimed through history. We're not talking about a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a precise moment in history which has been testified to by countless testimonies, and you and I have access to them. So faith, while it goes beyond reason, is not unreasonable. I hope that's pretty clear. Let's see how well our capacity to think critically is. What is the question regarding Christianity? Anybody? What is the single most important question about Christianity? Is Jesus the Christ, which which comes down to what? The question for Christianity, for indeed anything that's making a claim, anything that makes a claim, the question is, is it true? which in the case of Christianity boils down to another question. What is it that we're looking at? Is it true? It's certainly not the question, did Jesus exist? That's beyond dispute. We don't have to quote the Bible. We can look at Tacitus, Roman historian. We can look at Pliny, a Roman historian. We can look at Josephus, a Jewish historian. We can look at countless non-Christian sources who are not favorable to Christianity to know that Jesus lived. That's not the option. What is it that we're looking at to try to determine whether or not it's true? How would we know that? Is Jesus God? How would we know that? What would be the event we need to evaluate? The resurrection. This may sound really basic, but we're not all jumping out with answers, so maybe it's not. The key question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Which, presumably, we all would say yes to, or we wouldn't be here. At least we certainly wouldn't be in church. Well, that's a really ludicrous claim. (laughs) I have buried hundreds of people in my life. Never seen one of them sit up. Never talked to one of them. Never had a meal with one of them. How many people here have lost a parent or a spouse or a child, a good friend? Has anybody ever seen them again at a dinner conversation with a meal? When I lived in Rome, I had a classmate from, I think he was from Bosnia. And it was a Christmas break, I think. And I went to Paris with a friend of mine, came back, this classmate from Bosnia wasn't a friend of mine. I just, I heard about this afterwards. He went home to visit his family while he was home. And while he was home, he got abducted by Islamic fundamentalists. The typical way that they would confront somebody was to pose a statement to them, which was something like this. Repent or die like Christ. And they nailed him to the floor. True story. They nailed him to the floor. Needless to say, he did not come back for class. Imagine what his parents would have said if I went to visit them at Easter and sat down with them over a meal and said, I saw your son last night. How do you imagine they would have reacted? 
slap in the face, outrage, how dare you, you're trying to be some sort of cruel joke, whatever it might be. I don't think it would be really. Dead people don't come back to life. We know this. The generation before us knew it. People in the Middle Ages knew it. People in the first century knew it. They weren't stupid. Just because they didn't have a computer doesn't mean they didn't know what they were doing. Walk through the streets of ancient Rome, it's still standing. The Colosseum's still there. The lions don't even play in the Silverdome anymore. They survived two world wars, countless invasions, numerous sacks, the burning of their city, the plague, and the city's still standing. They weren't idiots, and they weren't simpletons. They knew, as well as you and me, dead people don't come back to life. And yet, all of a sudden, here they are claiming that this man did. So that's a historical claim, meaning a claim that can be investigated, and indeed must be investigated, because this is unlike any other claim, because this isn't just, oh, well, that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. No, the claim here is God has become man for you, suffered and died for you, so that you can share in his own abundant life forever, which comes through repentance and the clinging to him with your whole life. If it's true, it's better than anything we could have ever hoped for. If it's not true, it's an utter waste of time. Therefore, it demands a response from us and an investigation from us. So, the way you work with anything from human history is you have to work with the sources, because you and I weren't there, right? Certain people were, and they're claiming to say something about what happened, whether you're talking about Washington crossing the Delaware, you're talking about the Battle of uh, Waterloo, or whatever it is you're talking about in history, we're dependent upon the testimony of eyewitnesses. And the question, critically thinking, about the eyewitnesses is what? Are they credible? Well, who are the witnesses of the resurrection? Mary Magdalene's one? The apostles. The apostles are the primary witnesses with Mary of the resurrection of Jesus, huh? They're the ones who are out there. They're not saying, you know what, I knew somebody who told me that they saw this guy come back from the dead. It was pretty amazing, I guess. No, they're saying, hey, you know what, we know this sounds absurd. (laughs) We followed the man for three years. They arrested him, apprehended him, tortured him. We all took off. We were scared out of our minds, by the way. Why? Because we didn't want them to do to us what they were doing to him. So we all hit the road. And as utterly absurd as this sounds, we've seen him. In fact, we had lunch with him. On a couple of occasions, he showed us the scars in his hands and in his side and in his feet. And it all happened for you. That's what the apostles are saying. Well, the question then is, are the apostles credible? Because this is ridiculous. We know this from human experience, that it must be ridiculous. So something must be in it for them. They want to write a book, you know, get on Oprah, become famous. Who knows what? Huh? They got an ego trip. Maybe they were just total losers and they had some sense for trying to feel important. Whatever it might have been. Well, what happened to the apostles? Where are they? Where are they? They're dead. They're killed. How were they killed? How were these witnesses of the resurrection killed? How were they martyred? Not why, how? Peter's crucified upside down, huh? Some are stoned. Andrew's crucified on a cross that's shaped like an X. Anybody golf in here? Anybody ever seen the crest of St. Andrew's, the birthplace of golf? Anybody know what the crest of St. Andrews is? It's two golf clubs shaped like this. That's not because someone thought that'd be a cute little formation on a hat and sell merchandise. It's because St. Andrews is named St. Andrews because that's where they brought the relics of Andrew, the brother of Peter, to at a certain point in history. They found the city, called it St. Andrews, and the trade or the crest of the city is the axe upon which Andrew was crucified, to which when he was presented with, greeted it with, Hail, good cross. Anybody know how Bartholomew died? Bartholomew is one of the 12 apostles. Bartholomew was skinned alive. Anybody in here hunt? Ever skinned a deer? Anybody skinned a squirrel? It's hunting season coming up, huh? Imagine skinning a man alive. Imagine being Bartholomew. Imagine you're Bartholomew and you've been apprehended because word has gotten out that you and some others are spreading utter nonsense about this Jesus who is a rabble-rouser, who was claiming to be God, who has been executed, and now you refuse to let this lie and are trying to pin the blame on others, and so we've got to put an end to this. And so we drag you in, and we start talking to you. And you've only got a couple of options here. Easter Sunday morning, Jesus is either in the tomb or he isn't in the tomb. That's kind of a basic either-or, huh? How do we know he's not in the tomb? 
How do we know beyond the shadow of a doubt he's not in the tomb? Imagine I'm Peter, I'm Bartholomew, I'm out there, you know, I'm preaching away and I'm talking about this Jesus who was crucified and, you know, here's a Roman authority and here's one of the Jewish leaders and they say, you know, this is all very interesting, but if you all just follow me, we can head on over to the garden and you can see the tomb and, well, there he is, he's dead. You can all go home now. Never happened. Romans didn't do it. Jewish leaders didn't do it. Easiest way to silence nonsense, throw out the body, you know. Peter's preaching in the temple, throw out the carcass, there he is, you know, oh, that's Jesus. Definitely dead. Oh, well, would have been neat. And out you go. Never happened. That means he's not in the tomb, which means now you've got three options. Either the Jews or the Romans stole it, which we know can't be an option because, again, the moment they start preaching about Jesus, they throw the body out and that's the end of that. Or the apostles hit it, which has got to be the reason that it's not there. Or the absurd thing, which is he walked out, which can't happen because dead people don't come back to life. So Bartholomew and the others must have stolen the body. That's the only reasonable explanation, given everything from human experience. But now you're Bartholomew, and you're apprehended, and you're being questioned, and because we know this is nonsense, we start to threaten you. So we strip you, tie you to a table or a tree or who knows what, and begin to peel the skin off your body. If there is even the least suspicion that he's upstairs in the cupboard, or that there might have been too much wine flowing Sunday morning. Or you had bad mushrooms. Who knows what? It's going to dawn on you. I Wait, stop. Hey, hang on. I know where he is. He's upstairs. He's in the attic. He's behind a mattress. You'll find him. He's right there. Can you please stop skinning me alive? Never said a word. Nor did Peter. Nor did Andrew. Nor did James. Nor did James. Nor did John. Nor did Thomas. Nor did Philip. Nor did Simon nor did any of the apostles, and they all died by martyrdom. And unlike those who would fly planes into buildings, who would claim to be martyrs, who do so cursing those who they're killing, the witnesses of the resurrection, and indeed all the martyrs down through the 20 centuries of Christianity, have died praying for those who killed them. You cannot find a more credible witness than that. Indeed, the reasons that have been handed on to us from the apostles and all the saints down through the ages, but particularly the martyrs, far outweigh the reasons we would have to believe any other historical event that we're dependent upon historical eyewitnesses for. Because they paid for the testimony with their lives. And nobody, nobody dies for what they know is a lie. Lots of people die for lies. Nobody dies for what they know is a lie because life's too precious. The apostles have left to us extraordinarily strong reasons to have faith. That's why I say faith is not blind, though that's not the only reason we have faith. So what flows from this is what I want to go into in the weeks ahead and try and delve a little bit more deeply into. And it sets the stage for everything to come. That's why you have to begin with something as essential as the claim of Jesus to be who, in fact, he's claiming to be. Because if this is true, then it's true for everybody. If God has become man and done this, he hasn't done it for this little corner of the world over here. He's done it for everybody. Which means then that every human being who is the recipient of this or is the one for whom God chose to do this has extraordinary dignity. At whatever size, whatever phase of life, however old or young or beautiful or not as beautiful, however rich their cognitive capacity is, however profound their ability to communicate is, doesn't matter. Because every human being is the beneficiary or the target of this display of love that God has made. That's why we're going to spend one session talking about the inviolable dignity of the human person. If this is true, then the question should arise... Am I seeking to spend some time with this God who loves me beyond anything I could have ever hoped for? Because what we all crave is love. The purpose of life is to be loved and to love. In a nutshell, that's what life's about. Being loved, loving in return. Applies to God, first and foremost. Which means we're going to have to talk about prayer and our relationship with God in prayer. That's why we'll spend one week talking about that. Why are we not, if we're not, why aren't we running to spend time with the one who is love? If, in fact, that's what our hearts crave. And if this is true, then the mass, going from some sort of obligation that I have to keep, 
should move to being understood as this incredibly intimate encounter with the God who cares for me, again, beyond what I could have hoped for, and not only speaks to me in his word as it's proclaimed, but then gives himself to me, as he said in John 6, so that all that is his can be in me. Just like two lovers who are married give themselves to each other bodily and become one, so God desires to become one with us and to give himself to us so that we can be joined in union with him. He is not content merely to give us information. He wants to give us himself. Before I kind of open it up for some questions, let me just leave us with maybe three things to do. The first is read the scriptures. If we're not reading, start. We've got a slew of Bible studies over at St. Anastasia. It was one of the first things I saw when I looked at the webpage when I found out I was going there. I looked and there's like eight Bible studies going on at one time. I don't know if there's eight anymore, but there's a number of them that are going on. Call the parish, find out for some information. We'll try and put you in touch with one. Get one going amongst a group of friends. Get your hands on the Catholic scripture study that you can get online. There's all sorts of great resources out there, but begin to read the scriptures, particularly the Gospels, where we can spend time with Jesus every day. If you don't know how to start, you know, start with reading the Gospel of the day for Mass, or start just opening up to Matthew 1 and going through. Some of the books that I put on the bibliography, particularly Frank Sheed's To Know Christ Jesus, Bishop Fulton Sheen's The Life of Christ, and then another one by Romano Guardini called The Lord, are great companions to the Gospels. If you've never really touched the Gospels before or felt intimidated or didn't think you could get through them or you needed to be a Ph.D. in theology, then pick up one of these and have it as a guide as to walk you through. It'll be a great help. You can feel free to take a look at them afterwards. But begin to read them. Even if it's just the passage for the day every day would be enough. But don't limit yourself just to the Gospels. Many of us are familiar with the expression, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, which is what St. Jerome wrote. Many of us may not realize that he wrote that in a commentary on the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Therefore, it's it's not like this is the Christian scriptures and those are the Jewish scriptures and they really don't have a whole lot to do with each other other than there's a little bit of a foreshadowing. No, it's the manifestation of God through his word culminating in the person of Jesus. In many and various ways, Hebrews says, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us fully in his son. So we've got to read scripture. First thing. Second, if this is true, and we claim to believe this, then we have to come to a deeper understanding of what it means to believe in God. To believe is not merely to apprehend something intellectually. That's not belief. Belief means to cling. Indeed, belief means to lean on, to rely on, to count on, to bank on. To believe in God means to lean so far over on him that if he wasn't there, you would fall over. That's belief in God. And faith or belief doesn't just have one dimension, namely to believe in the one who has revealed himself. It has two dimensions, to believe in the one who's revealed himself and then to believe in that or to trust that which he has taught. Therefore, we have to be careful that we don't begin to pick and choose and cut and paste within the scriptures. We're all familiar with the expression of cafeteria Catholics, but there's cafeteria Christians. And if we're going to start picking and choosing, I'm going to start picking and choosing with the passage where he says, if you would come after me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. That's where I'm starting. Let's throw that out. I don't want that. I don't want the cross. I don't like pain. I don't like suffering. Let's start there. Let's not start with something trivial. Let's start at the top. But if I acknowledge him to be Lord, then he's trustworthy, which means I have to lend my ear to everything he says and to do it perhaps by gazing upon him on the cross to remember, okay, the one who's saying this to me, even though it looks really odd and I don't get it, is the one who gave himself for me. So if I have a problem with it, it's probably that I'm not understanding it. The problem's probably not with him. The problem's probably with me. We pride ourselves over and over again on, on not getting ripped off or taken for a ride. But I wonder if we are getting ripped off sometimes and taken for a ride. And I say that because whose voice are we listening to in the midst of all the voices out there clamoring for our time, our attention, our dedication, our commitment? Is his voice the one that's at the top of the list? Or is it just kind of filters through and maybe we get to it once in a while? Last thing to do. If this is true, if he is who he claimed to be, then you and I, by our baptism into his body, are called to be witnesses of it to others. The work of evangelization is not for a select few in the church, certainly not for priests, deacons, bishops, cardinals, popes, and religious. It's for every single baptized Christian. 
To be Christian is to be missionary in its essence. And missionary just means to be sent. You and I are sent by the Lord to tell others what it is he has done for us. When we were baptized, we were made to be sharers in Christ's life as priest, prophet, and king. To be a prophet doesn't mean that you foretell the future, although that might be involved. To be a prophet means that you speak on God's behalf, that you make known to others the wondrous things that he has done. The challenge right now is that it's not enough for you and I to make that known by our words. The world has had enough of our words. Many people are not Christian and are not Catholic because of us, because of Christians, because of Catholics, because they've heard the words, but the life doesn't connect. That's why the Pope says over and over again, the testimony that the world is waiting for is saints. The world wants holiness. It wants to see it in your life and in mine. That's what will change hearts. That's how people come to know the love of the Lord. It's great to know apologetics. It's great to be able to thumb through scripture and to find your hands on whatever it is you might need at that particular moment to answer a question. Those are all important things. But that which is most important is for our life to be a life of integrity and one that's authentic. So that somehow, by the grace of God, and it can only be by the grace of God, they get to see something of the Lord in us as earthen and broken a vessel as you and I are. It's worth remembering that for 250 years, longer than the history of our country, beginning in October of the year 64, not 1964, 64, which is probably the month in which Peter dies in Rome, For the 250 years that follow, Christianity is an illegal superstition within the Roman Empire. It is illegal for you to be a Christian and to exist in the Roman Empire for more than 250 years. And yet somehow, Constantine's vision at the beginning of the 4th century helped, but somehow the empire becomes entirely Christian. Despite all that, despite bloody persecutions, despite the illegality of them to exist, the empire becomes Christian. How? Mainly by the testimony of individual people's lives. And so you and I today in the midst of our culture, which is not pre-Christian, but is now increasingly post-Christian, are called to understand that the way we're going to change the culture and to help it to grow to be a genuine culture where we understand what life is about and we begin to treat each other with the dignity that we're supposed to be accorded is one life at a time. We didn't get in this mess overnight. We ain't getting out of it overnight. We will get out of it the more each of us takes advantage of each and every day and prays that the Lord will use us to reach out to others, that he will help us to grow in holiness so that the people that we live with, that we work with, that we play with, that know us, may come to see something of Christ alive within us. All right. So we can open it up for questions, and I think we got a little boom mic we can throw around the room for anybody who's got anything they want to shoot back at me. Father, would you refresh my memory on the proof that Christ actually did die? I guess throughout history there has been some way of saying, well, Christ actually didn't die. I mean, oh, that he, and then he resuscitated and was brought back to life? Yes. Okay, so imagine this. Huh? You, you, and, and, I, and I know that uh, there is a proof for that, but would you please refresh my memory? Well, I, I think it would be simply ignorance which would try to hold that somehow this man who's endured beating and torture and all that we see from the Gospels, which we know from other accounts is not unique to Jesus. Uh, The Romans would do this. They just inherited from the Persians the practice of crucifixion, which was pretty much just left up to the executioners to do whatever the heck they wanted to the prisoner that they had. So it's a pretty common thing that they do. So now all of a sudden this Jesus who has gone through all this, been mounted on a cross with nails in whatever fashion has been removed from that, is hardly going to be a real convincing witness to the apostles as he kind of limps into the room and goes, hey, look at me, and then falls down. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus walks into a closed room and says, hello, check out the holes. The claim of Jesus and the claim of the apostles isn't merely that he who was dead has been resuscitated, you know, like someone who dies on the operating table and comes back to life for a couple of days and or for a number of years. I mean, that's not the claim of the apostles. The claim of the apostles is he has gone on to an entirely different way of life because time and space don't hold him. He just shows up. For anyone to seriously argue that someone who's endured torture and attempted execution could convincingly demonstrate to friends that everything was just great, I think it would be a hard sell. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Father, in... 
Time Magazine, when they were talking about the Jesus Seminar, they mentioned in that article that the, the oldest fragments were written 40 years after Christ walked on earth. If the stories, the Gospels, were transferred by word of mouth, how can we rely on the authenticity of those stories? Good question. Because you and I grew up playing the telephone game. Right. So I tell you a story, you whisper it in each other's ears, by the time it gets to Henry up here, it's a completely different story. Right? Right. Anybody here from the Middle East? Absolutely unthinkable in the Middle East. Absolutely unthinkable for an oral tradition in an oral culture. Keep in mind, you have a culture which doesn't have books, by and large, because, one, there are no printing presses. They're extraordinarily expensive. In order to make them, someone has to hand-write them all, and most people are illiterate. So you have an oral culture, whereas everything is handed on orally. We're so transient, we just move around all the time. Again, the people for whom the land means everything, they don't move around. That's the whole part of the controversy in the Middle East. This is our land. We don't want you to give us that land over there, even if it's bigger, because this is our land. We're not going anywhere. For that culture, in some of those smaller villages in particular, even today and certainly at the time of Jesus, and we know this from uh, historical accounts too, you have in the town a particular person whose responsibility it is to hand down the stories of the town. It would be unthinkable for those to change. For us, it's unthinkable that it would be the same from you to you. We would just marvel at that. That's not at all to them. Example, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we found back in right after World War II, huh? which are the oldest texts that we have of the Old Testament, they're a thousand years older than anything we had. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so significant. They're a thousand years older than any text we had. When they compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with the oldest text they had, because the Dead Sea Scrolls come from the time of Jesus, with the text that we had that we were working from before, but it's something like 98% of what they have from a thousand is what's there in zero. What we would call zero, huh? It just doesn't change. A lot of that's simply because we don't grasp an oral tradition and an oral culture. Thank you. Sure. It's a great question because it's mind-boggling to us. They would be just as intrigued as to how it would be that our word wouldn't be reliable. This has been Christ is the Answer, program number 701. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 701. Who do you say I am? Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.